you know, you go to any of the trade shows and immediately it's, you know, gee whiz, look at this technology. We can make anything, you know, complexity's free. It really isn't. You're listening to the Design Engineering Podcast, where we explore topics important to Canada's mechanical engineers, product designers, and machine builders. I'm Mike McLeod, editor of Design Engineering Magazine, and today I'm joined by Peter Adams, co-founder and chief innovation officer for Burl Oak Technologies, an additive manufacturing firm based in Oakville, Ontario. During the interview, Peter delves into the realities of metal additive manufacturing, revealing the industry's dirty little secrets, as he calls them. He also discusses the fundamental change in design thinking required to make 3D printing work, explores the company's singular AM capabilities, and even touches on the difficulties inherent in starting a tech company in Canada. Before that, though, I'd like to take a moment to thank this episode's sponsor, IGUS. IGUS has been manufacturing engineering plastic components for more than 50 years, but now engineers can also 3D print wear-resistant prototypes out of the company's self-lubricating, maintenance-free materials. To learn more, check out the company's website at igus.com. With that, let's dive into the interview. Hi, Peter Adams. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't we start off, if you could describe Burlow Technologies for anybody who's not familiar with the company. Yeah, so that, that's quite straightforward. But Burl Oak is uh, one of the world's leading additive manufacturing companies um, in that we produce parts for very demanding applications in space, aviation, nuclear, and other related energy and industrial fields. So we're now moving into automotive. But I, I think we're much more than than simply a spend-as-you-file-and-print-it company. We're a complete vertically integrated solution from the engineering and, and material science side of the, of the additive industry right the way through all the different additive modalities and right to the finished part solution. We're nowadays, we're part of the... Uh, Samuel Sun and Company Group, uh, so one of Canada's oldest uh, manufacturing companies from back to 1855 and still privately held by the Samuel family. So, you know, it's a, a significant step forward for Samuel uh, moving into the future of, of manufacturing, uh, which was one of the strategic reasons for, for acquiring Burl Oak. And uh, it, it was a great move for Burlow because it gives us a, a multi-billion dollar parent company at a time where our business, you know, we've done the fundamentals to prove the technology to our customers. Now it's about scale. And for that, you need a company like Samuel. And I do want to get into that. But before we jump into that, I was just looking over everything that you guys do. There's... And I don't know that people realize this who aren't maybe, you know, in this space. There's a lot that goes on before and after the print. I mean, I for one, I was surprised at the number of subtractive manufacturing technologies that you guys have. I mean, we call it post-processing, but it's it's part of the whole process. It, it really is. And I, I think, Mike, that's, that's probably one of the most misunderstood things around additive is, you know, you go to any of the trade shows and immediately it's, you know, gee whiz, look at this technology. We can make anything, you know, complexity's free. It really isn't. You know, this is just another technology in the manufacturing toolbox. And the stuff that we can do with it is fundamentally game-changing from a design perspective. But in order to, to realize those design games, there's a whole series of things that need to happen along the way, from material science and the, the proof of the design allowables through the, the, the design of the components. And, you know, while we say complexity is free, 
just like everything else in life, nothing's free. <laughs> now, we, we, we can make geometries that are absolutely impossible with other technologies, but it comes at a price. And, and that price is you know, quite often realized in the downstream processing or in the investments we need to make up front on our parameters and process development in order to realize the surface finishes and mechanical properties that are needed. But at the end of the day, when the part comes out of a, let's assume a metal printer is what we're talking about, you know, it, it's still not a finished part that's going into an application. We've got a heat treat, you know, and the, there's some complex heat treat processes. So for us, to, to your point, you know, we're probably one of the only groups worldwide, I, think, I can think of one other off the top of my head, that has got a complete NAD, soon-to-be NADCAP facility for heat treating, including hot isostatic pressing, only one in Canada, all in-house. And then, you, put, you know, you put a, a multi-million dollar heat treat facility in that's probably close to 15, 20 million now. You put that in place, now you need a materials facility because you've got to be able to qualify all of these parts. So we, we put, a, a, again, a, a NADCAT-type materials lab that can go all the way from powder analysis and characterization through mechanical testing right the way up to uh, microstructure CT scanning all in-house. I mean, this is a, a huge investment. And, yeah. you know, it, to, to me, it's the only way that this technology is going to work. Yes. Uh, and I think from, fundamentally, uh, you know, you've touched on it with the subtractive side. We have a state-of-the-art machine shop. And the reason being that, you know, when you, when you change the, the fundamentals of the design, typically the complexity of the machining required goes up exponentially hmm. so now you've you've got all of these wonderful organic shapes that we all go to trade shows new and are at but the reality is somebody's got to be able to to texture that to find its its orientation in space when there's no obvious datum positions and then you've got to be able to machine it and you when you are machining it because the printing process is is so different Instead of a, a typical machining approach where we're going to spend 95% of our cycle rough machining and semi-finishing, and the machine shop get, gets to make all of that money on that process, hmm. now we're talking about parts that maybe have one millimeter of stock on them all over or just on a couple of key faces. There's your efficiency in your machining and your ability to set up low volume, very, very complex components, and then accurately remove just material from the faces required, changes the game completely. So, so we invest probably as much in machining as we do in additive. Yeah, there are a number of moves that that have happened over the last couple of years. Because I think I think a lot of the the news that have that's come out of Burlock doesn't really land with anybody who doesn't isn't intimately familiar with the technologies. So you mentioned the the high hot isometric isometric press isostatic isostatic. My my apologies. So that's that's really key to the whole process because. Another component of what you guys do is that material test, that testing and quality control part of it that not, not every service bureau has or not many at all. And like you said, it's the only one in, in Canada. Uh, yep. why, is that, why is that so key, especially for aerospace and automotive kind of applications? So, so again, I, I think it's another one of the, the dirty little secrets of, of additive, if you will is you know the, the the industry has run through a couple of hype cycles where you know everybody the, the machine builders are running around you know buy one of these and 
you, people are going to come knocking at your door and they just send you the, the digital file and you print it. But the reality is, you know, yes, you can, anybody can print a shape, whether it's metal or plastic, that's the easy bit. The, the, the fundamentals, how, how do we prove that that shape we've just printed, the materials have got the right properties to, to, equival, to give equivalency to a, a material that we understand as design engineers. So a 60-61 T6 aluminum. You know, if, if I give that spec to most design engineers, they're going to know roughly what they can get out of that material. They've got their FEA tools that can stimulate that material very well. And they understand all of its fatigue uh, and crack propagation type, type failure modes. If I give them an additive material, well, what the heck is it? You know, the, there's no understanding of that. So we've, we've been very, very quiet, as you've, you've realized. We, we tend not to put a lot out in the press. We're getting better at it now. But for the longest time, we were very, very secretive in what we did. And because we were, we were spending our money developing the science behind this and and getting to the point that people like Boeing and MDA and many others would qualify our materials and would trust the science behind our processes to deliver material equivalency. So, you know, we, we invested in the tens of thousands of test coupons, uh, and it just became obvious that we could do some unique things with heat treatment because these are different materials. And the problem in the industry, everybody was applying non-standard heat treat processes. Rather than customizing the process to the material that you're producing to get the maximum benefits from it. So that, that's been a, a huge road to, to go down and a difficult road to go down um, in order to build that baseline knowledge uh, and demonstrate that capability and the repeatability of it. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you can't repeat what you're doing, then it's just a prototyping technology. And as I understand it, I mean, that process basically it drives all the porosity out of the 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 metal powder. Given yeah, so the, the 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 in general, you're correct. I mean that that's the fundamentals of hot isostatic pressing. You know, as a technology, it's been around for a long time. Uh, it gets used extensively in castings, um, and you're right. Fundamentally, it squeezes the part under immense pressure and floats any porosity or squeeze, you know, squeezes the bubbles down or floats them to the surface, whichever way you look at it, uh, to get to densify the part. Now, you know, we, we set out in life uh, to eliminate all porosity as part of our process. And, you know, with most materials, we're there. We're 99.995% dense right out of the machine process. So why do you still need to hit? You know, if you if you if porosity isn't the isn't the issue. Oh I see. But within the hip within the hip cycle, now you know that that's our process. We get to that those kind of properties. Yeah. Um but what we've found we can change the mechanical performance. So things like fatigue life the tensile properties, all of those things can be dialed in using different recipes and different cooling formulas so that we can customize the, the alloy to the application. And that, that's really what we're using the, the HIP process for, is to, to really deliver those finished materials that are suitable to the given application. And as I understand it, I mean, anybody who is making 
metal part, 3D metal parts for aerospace or any other kind of had to to deliver that kind of or at least in the ballpark of, of some kind of quality and all those parts had to go to like Boston or somewhere down in the states because there wasn't that kind of equipment here in Canada until now. Absolutely and you were adding weeks to the lead time and it was horrendously expensive and it, it's actually you know, because it, it, the technology grew up in the in the casting industry, really, people were were running cycles. You know, they quite rightly, but were developed for castings. And when you when you start putting very very thin wall delicate components, which is what additives very good at delivering, you don't see many castings that have those attributes. Mm-hmm. So the process is. Uh, the hip process can be very, very destructive on the parts if you don't understand how to deal with it. And we were losing parts that were tens of thousands of dollars uh, of manufacturing. We'd send it for hip and, you know, the part would come back a completely different shape because of the process. So bringing it in-house has given us that level of control over our manufacturing that just enables us to take things to the next level. And I think another part that might be easily overlooked, there was a lot of work that went on beforehand to figure out how to make things repeatable. It was called your development and uh, standardization database. So that's something that you guys came up with internally. Yeah, we we have invested literally tens of millions uh, since the outset on tuning these processes, mapping the the process windows of these machines in a manner that on a given application with a given material and machine combination, we can predict the outcome and know that it's repeatable every time. And, and, you know, for us, you, you couldn't get of serial production with the types of customers we have without that obsession for, for dialing in the process and being able to demonstrate that that process is dialed in and repeatable and it is thoroughly documented. Because there aren't, are there, I mean, for other kinds of parts, I imagine there are some kind of quality standards, international ISO kind of quality standards, but are, are there those kinds of standards for 3D printed parts? So they're coming along. I mean, we we have uh, many of our scientists and engineers sitting on the various regulatory bodies, you know, AMS, ASTM, SAE, and so on. And they've all got their own standards committees that are developing for their specific industries these are the, the properties that we need out of a given material from this particular modality of, of additive. And you've got to, you've got to remember, you know, there's, we, we say additive in a general term, hmm. but there's really a, a whole suite of different technologies there, whether it's electron beam powder bed, whether it's the directed energy deposition with powder or with uh, wire deposition or laser powder bed is obviously the, the the more known technology in the metal printing and then you know you move across into the polymers and you've got high-speed extrusion FDM, SLS, SLA technologies. Sure. Every one of them needs a standard. Every one of them needs standards for each of the materials, for the heat treatments, for the testing protocols, for the design rules. So this is a, you know, a hugely complex subject. And, and you know, again, I think that's one of the, the things that we dialed into very early on is, you know, it, when you look at the market, the, the the dominant player in the metals market is uh, laser powder bed fusion, uh, where you're laying down the thin layer of powder and then firing the laser to solidify that layer and repeating thousands of times. But it's not the only technology, you know, and it, it, it's good at some things, it's not so good at others. 
So we recognized we needed to be, if we were going to solve problems for our customers, we needed to have all of the modalities under one roof. Uh, we needed to be able to, to be technology agnostic from the outset. So when a customer comes to you, typically, it, you know, we want to print this part out of this. You know, and our first thing is why? You know, give us the fundamental reason what's driving you to make that statement. Because if we can't, if we can't agree that it's a good idea and, you know, we're on a success path, then we shouldn't be doing it. You know, I, th I think you've got two sides to the industry. One that takes the approach, I've bought a machine, I've got to fill it, send me your part and I'll print it. And I'm really not that bothered what the outcome is. It's your problem to deal with. And we take a different approach where we're not going to let you print the part on any of our machines unless we understand, you know, what the end goal is we're trying to achieve. What does success look like? Which technology do we need to apply in order to achieve that success? And what are the downstream requirements we need to apply in order to get to a qualified production part? Without that, what's the point? That must come as quite a shock to some of them. Here, I want to give you money. Uh, no, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> it, it's, it's definitely an eye-opener. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's a serious business. We're 120-odd you know, million dollars into this program now and yeah. still growing it. You can't invest that kind of money and not have a, a rigid process for for how you qualify things. So all these questions that I've been asking, I wanted to try and logically build to the partnership with Boeing. And I think Burlow being the first and I imagine only, I don't want to say service bureau, but you know what I mean? 3D printer to- No. To, on, to, only qualified supplier. Only qualified supplier, right? I mean, they could have gone to somebody in the United States. They could have gone to anybody anywhere uh but they picked you guys i well i, I you know I, i've got to be very very respectful of our customer here so i'll sure. you know they, they they have worked with many many people over the years and i'm sure they continue to work uh you know to, to qualify others um but i think it, it became apparent to everybody that we were further down the path than, than most of our competitors and were, a, were an easier path to, to do the pathfinding work of how, how do we qualify a standard for flight. So that, you know, it was just a natural progression, I think, and it's been a, a wonderful relationship so far and continues to grow. Boeing will undoubtedly qualify others to that standard over the, the coming years, and they need to. They're a huge organization, and, you know, it doesn't matter how big uh, Burlough and Samuel become, no one company can or should meet the entire needs uh, of uh, a company the size of, of Boeing. You know, they, they wouldn't allow it. Uh, for one, uh, it'd be too too high risk for them, and it wouldn't be practical for anybody else to try and meet that need. And that standard that they certified you to, the BAC fifty six seventy three spec, that's that's their internal standard. Yeah, right? okay. yeah. So we we've we've helped them with that along the way. Uh, you know, an, an awful lot of input into to how it was written. Um, and then a lot of work demonstrating how to, to prove that it's right. Um, but as I say, just great engineering group uh, uh, that we're working with there. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they'd say equally the same about our team that, uh, that works with them every day to, to, to continue to build on that and the other things that we're doing with them. Closer to home, there's also the partnership with the uh, Canadian Space Agency and and McDonald Detweiler and Associates to do the. Yep. Now, are those two different concepts? There's one. There was one announcement about antennas for MDA, and there was another one about communication subsystems with the CSA and MDA. Are those two different things, or yep. those the same thing? 
They, they, they kind of, I mean, obviously they're connected. A lot of what we learn on a program with the, with the Canadian Space Agency, we subsequently apply to antenna systems with MDA. Uh, and vice versa, um, but the, the fundamentals of, of you know what we've achieved with uh, with Canadian space is really demonstrating the scalability uh, of additive, uh, both in in terms of size and in in terms of integration of of components into single systems. So taking hundreds of components, consolidating them into one very large structure, and then being able to produce that structure to a, a standard that, that meets all of the requirements of the application and of, of the need to fly. Um, so, you know, that, that's been hugely successful. And, you know, Canadian Space Agency have just been a, a great partner. Uh, we continue to do some, you know, many things with them in, in different fields. Uh, and the same with, with MDA, just a, you know, great, great partner. I mean, there's probably very few companies globally as knowledgeable as they are about how to do difficult things in space. And your point about consolidating lots of different parts into one, like a, instead of an assembly, just printing the whole thing out as a solid singular part. I mean, kind of gets to one of the other things that I wanted to talk about was there's a lot that goes on before you actually print the part. There's the rethinking of design for additive manufacturing is a big yep. part of it. I mean, because you have to really change your whole thinking. You can't say, here's a part that we see and see. Can you 3D print this? This is the wrong way to go about it. A absolutely. And that's, that's really, you know, the starting point with a lot of conversations is we're, we're kicking the tires of additive, you know, we, we want to print this part. And the minute we look at it, we say, well, why? You, you know, we can CNC machine that faster and, and more cost effectively. Well, you know, we just want to see, see how the technology works. And we say, well, you know, you, that's the wrong thing to do. If we can make it any other way, let's keep doing it as long as it's more efficient and it yields the results that you need. What are you trying to solve? But if we can understand, you know, what does this system in its entirety do? Mm -hmm. And if I could take away your current design thoughts, which are all really constrained by manufacturing processes downstream, uh, we, you know, designers designed for the limit of the manufacturing process in general, so if we take away those constraints and we gave you a blank sheet of paper, what would the system need to accomplish in its entirety? Forget the individual component. And if you can get that thought process going, that's really what drives the innovation of the design is, you know, let's understand what does this system really need to do? What's its job? And then... If I take those constraints away, what would it look like? Now you're back into, okay, so that's, that's the idealized view of the world. You know, now, contrary to what, we, you know, what the hype is, there are some constraints within AM. Let's build those in and see where we end up. And when you start doing things like that, you, know, you can take hundreds of components in an assembly and all of that associated... CNC machining of all the individual parts, the cleaning, the post-processing, the inspection, assembly, and you can bring them down to a single uni unified structure. When you do that, now you you know you you think of the cost savings in a, in an application like that. But in order to get there, we're now back to that discussion we had earlier on the CNC machining. But now I've got all of these components combined into one structure, I got to find all of these datum points in 3D space on a structure that's flimsy as all heck. And I've got to, I've got to somehow machine it and meet the tolerance. Right. So, so our, our approach to machining is fundamentally different to what you'd see in 99% of, of other places. Right. Because you can't, you can't do 
you know, when you're taking just a few thousandths of an inch off to achieve a finished size and the parts flimsy and difficult to hold, the datums uh, are not, you know, plainer features the way they would normally be, you've got to approach it differently. And that's, that's going to be a hard thing for, you know, engineers to wrap their heads around. I mean, even the tools that they use, like CAD systems and so on and so forth, most of their commands replicate that subtractive thinking. Are there fundamental things that you tell engineers when they're trying to wrap their heads around, like a DFAM kind of thought process? Yeah, so there are, and we, we have a, a program that we, we've run for, for many years now uh, called AM Works, where we is basically send, send us your engineer and we'll send you back a new one, to coin the phrase from the, the summer camp thing that I hear on the radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's, we, we basically, we, we partner our customers' engineers with our design for additive guys, you know, at the end of the day, the customer knows their product, knows their application. We're not we're not seeking to 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 replace that that knowledge. What we're seeking to do is show the customer what the possibilities are with the technology and with a different approach, and then educate them on. How do we apply the design rules of additive into this application to yield the best results? For for customers that partner up with us, we will take a a small group of engineers usually through uh, a very formal training program where we, you know, the first few days we give them the, the basic understandings of how the technology works. Then we dive into a deeper look at some of their applications and we'll end up picking out, you know, three or four different programs that look like they've got a a good success path. And then we we develop the business case with them. Now, what does this look like? What does success look like commercially, you know, financially for the the program, commercially from a a lead time, a performance gain perspective and what you know how do we get this to the end market will we buy it you know we, we worked on a, a landing gear program several years ago where the, the we came up with one of these organic looking parts at the end of the day and uh, at, at the end of it the customer looked and said you know this is great it, it's superb the, the all of the stress analysis works but you know what's going to happen? We're going to bolt this on the on the aircraft. Pilot's going to do his walk around, look at that, and say, "I'm not flying with that thing. It doesn't look strong enough." So let's add some metal back on. Let's make it look more traditional because they're, they're going to be suspicious of that. So you've got to be able to, you know, you can do all these wonderful things, but at the end of the day, if the customer can't realise a gain in their business, what's the point? So. And- You've got, you know, you've got. We, we we take them through this process, and the end goal is that by the time we've been through the full course with the group, they've got two or three success cases and finished parts in the hand that they can take back to their team and then start that almost on a train the train of type program internally. And I think that I think that brings up another one of the major sort of challenges for additive manufacturing in general. It's just this perception problem. I mean, in some senses, it seems like people have an unrealistic expectation of what it can do, but at the same time, an underappreciation for what it can do. Does that make sense? That, that makes perfect sense. Okay. And again, I think it comes back to you know, it, it, the the analogy I always use is when you when you look at ninety five percent of the AM metals market today, mm-hmm. it's powder bed laser machines, and you know from multiple manufacturers, but fundamentally most of those powder bed lasers fall within about a two hundred and fifty by two fifty by three hundred mil build envelope. And, you know, there's 95% of your market. Mm. So if you phone up your your average group that's got an AM machine and say, I've got a part, 
first thing they're going to ask, what size? Now, can I fit it in this envelope? The next thing they're going to say is, can you send me a file and they'll give you a quote for printing it? But you're immediately going down a path that, take, that says, you know, the only tool I've got in my toolbox is a hammer. Therefore, every, everything that I'm going to look at is going to be a nail. You know, I, I, I've got to get it into this envelope. Where really, if you step back a bit and you, you know, you've got the ability because you've got all the modalities there and you've got many different sizes of, of systems, you tend to take a more objective view that says, you know, I can machine this part just as easily as I can print it. It's going to be half the price if I machine it. There's no gain here, guys. Let's look at the problem again. And until you get to that engineered solution that, there's, there's a reason for doing it, then, then you can start going down the path of which technology meets the need. And you guys are dealing in much, I mean, potentially larger parts. If I remember correctly, you guys have uh, a machine, an EBAM machine that's like the largest, has the largest build space? Yeah, we, we actually ended up running into many, many technical issues on that machine and it's, oh, it's never, never arrived in-house. Uh, but we do, you are correct, we're, we're working on a program at the moment that's ultimately going to be 2.4 metres by, I think, 1.6 by 1.2 metre uh, build envelope. So, you know, now we're getting into you know, real component sizes. Um, but ge generally, you know, we're in kind of a, a 400 mil by 400 by 400. And again, on the powder bed side, and we're now pushing the, a program that's going to be 450 by 450 by a meter. So we're getting, you know, very, very serious components. Is that in all related to that uh, NRC developed technology that they licensed to you guys back in 2019? Uh, yep. Yep. So that, that program continues to develop. And yes, that, that technology will be applied to that program. I mean, that's not even a technology that's commercially available. I mean, you can't buy a machine that does that. I mean, this is something no, that they license to you exclusively and you guys use it as part of that. Yes. Yeah, so we actually set out on a path where we were in the early days. We, our intent was to build a, a commercial machine and bring it to market. Uh, and we had a, a couple of applications with some some of our big aerospace customers. The further we got into really understanding the technology and what NRC had developed. Um, which is absolutely unique in, in the DED field. I mean, yeah. what, uh, what what Dr. Lejeune has done down there is, is truly remarkable. Um, but w the further we got into understanding what it was that he'd really done, the further we, we realized, hang on, this isn't a machine that we've got. This is an application. And it belongs, as you've just suggested, in our toolbox of applications. And we can apply it across multiple systems the, the way that Dr. Lejeune's developed it. And, I, and ironically, it, it actually yields a lot of results similar to some that we do on uh, powder bed lasers uh, that have people scratching their head as to how we achieve what we do directly out of a machine in terms of precision and surface finish and material properties. Is that its main advantage then? It gets you near net shape so there's less post-processing on the back end? Yeah, it, I mean, it, he's actually dialed it in on uh, many applications now and, and we've done the same with, uh, with laser powder bed uh, whereby you know, for the first time ever, there is no machining coming out of the, to be done when you come out of the process. It is a finished component. Uh, you know, very, very limited applications, because like with all things in life, there's trade-offs. Sure. Um, you know, whether that's time and cost or, you know, whether you, you're giving up other other aspects of, of material properties or whatever it is, there's always a trade-off. 
but it, there are some absolutely game-changing applications going to come out of that technology. And, uh, you know, we're very excited for where it's leading and our customers are excited for where it's leading. I guess, I guess the other thing, the thing that strikes me is it's got to be difficult to find people who have, I mean, you're part job shop, part engineering consultancy, part obviously 3D printing and, and materials testing. I mean, it's got to be really difficult to find people who have expertise across all those domains. Yeah. My impression that, that finding people to, to do this kind of work is, is, is a challenge, even, even more so than, say, for anybody else. It is, and I, I think we're, we're blessed because we've took a, a different path to everybody else. But, you know, we don't just, you can't send us a file and we're just going to quote, quote on print in it. Um, you know, there's a relationship piece and there's a, a science piece to everything we do. And because of that, we've tended uh, just through networks within networks uh, we've tended to attract very, very talented people that want to come and work at Burlow because of this uniqueness of the environment. Uh, and, you know, consequently, we advertise more for kind of general positions, but the, the, the core group that does the, the fundamental science piece, we have a, a list of people, you know, as long as you're on the are asking to come and work at Burloak. So we're, we're fortunate in that regard. What, what do you think has to happen for additive manufacturing to reach the kind of level that it requires the same kind of knowledge or skill or whatever to match CNC machining? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, with, within the bounds that they are fundamentally different technologies. And, I, sure. I, you know, I think this, again, is one of the one of the challenges is you've got a, a group that wants to put them just straight out on a machine shop floor and, you know, let's just run it in the same fashion, hit P for print and away we go. We're a long way from that. I think we'll get there. We're seeing more and more of the machine tool builders globally stepping in with additive solutions. And I think that's a good thing um, mm -hmm. because you know, historically, the people that made additive machines weren't necessarily machine builders. And, you know, machine builders understand that every time that machine does something, it has to do it the same way. And it's, it's got to be repeatable. So, you know, if you, if you bought a Max or a CNC, let's say, or a Mazak, you would have an expectation immediately as to if I buy one of them, it works at this tolerance. And if I buy another one and put it next to it, it's going to work identically to it. That, that, that hasn't been evident until, you know, the past couple of years or so in the, in the AM space. And that's been a challenge because then it's relied on companies like Burlow that are willing to open the covers and figure out what's different and how do we stabilize this. So until you get... So that level of repeatability from machine to machine, you, you, it's difficult to scale that. So that, there's one piece. The, 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 the material supply chain, I think, is getting to a point that it's mature enough and there are some very, very good players there that with the right machine, with the right powder and the right process, you can deliver a, a, a scalable solution. And then the next piece that's needed is really somebody to demonstrate the scalability of this as a technology similar to, uh, in your analogy, the CNC world, where, you know, you'd go out and you'd win a major contract from a, a prime mm -hmm. and you'd gear, you'd gear up a facility localized to them that would handle that contract for the next 10, 20 years. That's the piece that I, I think has been missing to date. And I, I think, you know, you're going to see some things, uh, you know, within our roadmap that are going to demonstrate that scalability. And I think once people start to see what does the roadmap for AM look like, 
in terms of, you know, find you doing 500, 1,000, 100,000 of a component, which is kind of where we're at at the moment. How does that look if I'm doing 50 components and I'm doing 10,000 of each and I'm, you know, I've got to be doing it in Hawaii or wherever I've got to deliver the things. How does that supply chain work? So how do we scale this out? Once you start getting one or two of those proof points of that, then it becomes the, the technology that, you know, it's just a matter of adoption. Are there any other things that you think are important that we, we haven't touched on? In terms of, of the Canadian space in particular, I think it's still, if I'd opened Burl Oak in the U.S., uh, it would have been a much easier path than doing it in Canada. And that and that's sad. I mean that needs that needs help from from all levels of government. But you know, it it's difficult to open a technology business in Canada and be successful. Um because you know, venture capital's hard to come by. Uh, I was fortunate in that I, I had some great partners with me from the outset and you know, then we were blessed by the fact that Samuel came in and took an interest in what we were doing and obviously gave us that scalability. But that's a rare story in Canada. Mm. You know, t- typically you would expect uh, a Burl Oak type company to, to do its first couple of rounds in Canada and then be acquired by a U.S. group, which almost happened as well. And then we would have moved south of the border and Canada would have lost out. That is something that's just down to the the conditions of of the business world in Canada. And it's difficult uh, without government putting in the right conditions for that. Because we, we've got the talent, you know, we've got the talent in Canada and we've got all the good ideas. What conditions do you think, are there are there specific things that you think... Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, if you look at venture capital as a, for sure. instance, yeah. you know, VC, VC money is easy to come by in the U.S. People are willing to take risks, but in Canada, not so. You know, you've got innovation funds, you would argue, but, you know, when, when you're going to fund an innovation project at 40-odd cents on the dollar, it's not really innovation, Okay. It's something that it's it's a, a pretty surefire bet by the time it gets to that level of risk. It, you know, the, the, the innovation money in the U.S. is really swing for the fences stuff. One out of every 50 companies I invest in is going to be a, a surefire success. And I'm going to make my money on that and I'm going to make big multiples on it. That environment doesn't exist in Canada. And, you know, for me, uh, as an entrepreneur, I, I I look at it that you know mo- money moves where it's easy to make money, sure. and where there's not where there's not restrictions on how much money you can make and how much you're going to get taken away from you in taxes once you get there. It's just a fact. It, it's just a fact of life, and th- those conditions are much more favourable in in the U.S. I I would suggest. I mean, is that a American VC is not seeing Canada as a fertile ground for that kinds of for that kind of swing for the fences, or is that we're aware but getting in, getting embroiled in a Canadian and its strictures, either its tax structures or so on and so forth, doesn't make it worth it, or is it both? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's a little bit of both. I think the you know, it, it's just easier to open a company. There, there's less regulation, mm. less restrictions at every every level. I mean, you know, I'm not criticizing any one government or any one party. I think, you know, they're all flavors of the same things. There's nothing fundamentally shit. Um, it, it's, it, you know, it's just much easier to do business in some parts of the world. I, I guess I, I was just determined. I'd, I'd come to Canada 20 odd years ago and fell in love with the place. And it, for me, it's been a very good country. It's been good for my family. And 
I felt that I had an obligation to do what we were going to do in Canada, and I'm glad we did. But it would have been a much easier road if we'd done it elsewhere, and that's a that's a sad fact. But if the if if the government and the country doesn't stand behind, you know, getting into these industries that are fundamentally very risky and challenging to to take that leadership position in then you can't expect to get the rewards down the road uh, and that generally means you know fewer jobs in canada and the high-tech knowledge that we're so good at developing ends up leaving the country yeah that's brutal but you know on a yeah. side trying to play vc from a governmental you know from a national it's got to be just it's got to be like a third oh God, God forbid you throw millions of dollars at it and it goes bust and everyone points at you and says, look at Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, the, and there isn't an easy answer. I, I think the best answers are, are always keep the government small, get them out of the entrepreneur and the investor's way and, and let capitalism work, you know, and, you know, whatever you want to call it, work. Sure. You know, pe people want to invest in good ideas or in ideas that have got big potential. So why put barriers in the way? Uh, and I, I think that's the fundamental. I'm not for a moment suggesting that government should be there to, to fund every good idea. I think that's generally a, a, a bad thing because, you know, government can never move quick enough for, for an entrepreneur. Yeah. You, you've you've got to let the market be the market, but you you, I think the only thing a government can ever do is is make the the conditions right for for people to want to invest and take risk. Gotcha. Well, again, thank you very much, Peter, for joining us today, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time with us. Mike, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe to the Design Engineering Podcast or check out the podcast tab on our website, www.design-engineering.com for new episodes. Also, if there's a specific topic you'd like us to cover, please let me know. Send your request to my email address, mmcleod at design-engineering.com. If the subject has broad appeal and is appropriate to our audience, I'll do my best to make it happen. And finally, a special thank you to this episode's sponsor, IGUS, where complex geometries come to life inside the SLS Print Lab. Visit igus.com to upload your step file today. Thank you again, and hope to see you back soon. Music